This Expert Insights evening was recorded in front of a live audience on the 28th of March, 2018. The topic discussed is working with values in clinical practice. On the panel we have Dr. Susie Green, clinical and coaching psychologist, Dr. Sophie Burgess, clinical psychologist and researcher, and Kate, our lived experience representative. Chairing this evening is Dr. Vered Gordon. So we might start just clarifying some of those key concepts and I might continue with um, what you were talking about, Susie. Um, Perhaps we could look at how we might define a value and maybe how that differs from a goal or a string. Yeah, definitely. I guess values are the things that matter most to us. This is very simple. I'm not using a scientific definition as such here, but for me, um, it's the things that really matter most to us and, and particularly if we didn't have them in our life, that would affect our well-being. Um, whereas the strengths, there are two different approaches to strengths. Um, one is the character strengths, which are defined as morally valued. So they're things like kindness, gratitude, leadership, forgiveness. Um, so you definitely can value a character strength, but when you think about values, they can be much broader. So most people, for example, value their health. Um, you know, or accomplishment, if you like. So in the work I've done, both clinically, counselling, coaching, I usually ask clients to spend time on values clarification, but we also pair that with strengths identification as well. And they, they actually work really beautifully together. And values and goals, like how do they align yeah. with each other? Well, the values, um, I guess the, the goals, and I can give you the scientific definition of a goal because I've memorised it because I've had so many people say, I don't do goals, I don't like goals, and I'm an absolute goals person. I'm at the complete opposite end. I love goals. So goals are, are the internal representation <laughs> of a desired end state. So that means we all have goals. It's just the internal uh, desires of things that we would like to see in our lives, if you like. Some of us are very explicit about our goals and others don't necessarily make them explicit. And I think that's the same thing I found with values. Um, it, mind you, I would like to have done an experiment myself, experiment myself because most people, if you ask them, what are your top five life, core life values, could not articulate off the tip of their tongue what they are. Um, unless you've been, you've grown up in a family where values have been spoken about, talked about. Um, but, but again, some people can, it doesn't take long to reflect on it and, and make them explicit. But for other people, clients, I still <coughs> recall one client that said to me, Susie, I, cause I said, do you think you could have a, you know, I don't expect you to, to come up with them immediately, but do you think you could come back in the next couple of weeks with asterisks, some of the, uh, on the list of values? And she said, Susie, I think I need a whole, the, the, the year, I need a year <laughs> to really stop and take stock of what really matters to me in my life. So that was a big lesson for me, um, I guess as a naive uh, psychologist and um, around values, was thinking that people could very quickly come up with them. Um, And the other lesson I've learned is uh, sometimes people come back very quickly with them and if you encourage them to go away, put the list away, bring it back, meditate, go in nature, reflect on it, keep bringing it back. Um, I had one client, for example, that came back after a month and I said, you know, how are you going? And he said, he basically slammed, he goes, these aren't my values, these are my father's values and I've been living my father's life for the last 20 years, he said. So, Sophie, that might segue me to you. Um, there are values that are sort of held by society, I guess, yeah. or seen as the right values in yeah. society, and then there's our values as individual. Yeah. Yeah. Can we tell the difference, our values and society's values, and does it matter? Um, well, I think standing from what Susie was talking about, first of all, a, tra- a trait, an intrinsic trait to somebody and a goal isn't necessarily mutually exclusive. So somebody might have an intrinsic character trait that is being helpful and generous, and yet they might also have uh, a value or a trait of being 
humble, or what we call humility. So they're less likely, in fact, to say, like, this is something that is goal-oriented for me. I practice it every day. Mm. I don't set a goal to be helpful or practice an act of kind, kindness or generosity or helpfulness in my everyday life. And so we might see, for example, that particular individuals don't actually come in with, I need to set goals. It's actually more around that that there's feelings of purposelessness and loss and inertia. And that's, in fact, where it can be really helpful to start clarifying what is valuable to the, um, to the individual. But with regard to, you know, what is an, a personal or individual value and what is a moral or social value, I guess what the literature tells us is that personal values are those that can be both traits, so intrinsic to individuals, uh, they can be things that are brought up, uh, socialised by the environment, such as taught by family, those that are explicitly talked about or not talked about. So uh, an example could be somebody who actually values wealth not because wealth was talked about but because maybe they're afraid of being poor like mm -hmm. their father was. Um, whereas when we're talking about moral or social values, we're talking here more about kind of uh, the well-being of, of society uh, in, in, as a whole and what helps society function. So uh, we're talking here about what is more valuable traits if we want to put a label on what uh, sort of a, a pejorative or a non-pejorative statement about it. So here, values of security, values such as belongings, uh, such as helpfulness, you see a certain kind of value set in more collectivist cultures than you do in more individualist cultures. Um, for example, and you see a linkage between the two. So wealth might be something that people are uncomfortable saying is a personal value of theirs. Um, because it might link to, you know, thinking that they're an exploitative capitalist. Whereas we know that for most societies, economic stability leads to a sense of security and well-being and safety. And so, therefore, that might be an example of one that is more of a social sort of value. So, yeah. It's kind of a, as intrinsic versus extrinsic. And sometimes uh, what... I guess what can be problematic is the values that we have for ourselves when displaced onto other people and they don't act in accordance to that. That's often where conflict arises, um, but that happens in everyday life, you know. So we have to look at every single person having individual values that are different. So I might um, turn to you, Kate. Um, perhaps you can share with us a little bit about the context in which you were introduced to um, sure. Act acceptance and commitment therapy for those who aren't that familiar with the acronym, and some of these ideas of values and so on. And in the beginning, what your yeah. what your experience was of that? Sure. Yeah. So um, I was seeing a psychologist. This was quite some time ago, probably about 2013, and um, and it, she was she was new to me. My regular psychologist had gone on maternity leave, and she introduced me to the Happiness Trap um, by a book called uh, Yeah. Russ Harris, yeah, and um, yeah, and it was a different approach that I than I'd seen taken with with my other psychologists in terms of a real focus on um, that self compassion, but also on values. Like nobody had really ever asked me what my values were, and um, like you were saying, it was it was quite challenging to think of what that that meant to me what my values were because you often think of the values that you think you should have because society tells you that as opposed to the values that are really important to you as a person. And um, so, you know, I went through an exercise with her where she broke it into, she, the way she framed it for me, which I found really um, useful was how, what are some words that you would like a friend to use to describe you? What are some words that you would like your um, workmates or your in a professional life used to describe you? An intimate partner or um, children or young uh, or, you know, uh, 
all those sort of things. So in different frames of your life, what are, how would you like somebody to describe you? Um, and so it kind of made me think of myself from that external perspective, like what kind of person would I like to be seen in and how did that relate to the values that I put on a person? So for me, like what do I value most in myself? What would I like to improve most? And that was a pretty good exercise for me. Having said that, I think one of the things that I've experienced in, in my experience of therapy is that I will often have these great aha moments where I'm like, oh, that really resonates for me and this is an amazing exercise and I'm going to apply that to my life, go back to my life and do not <laughs> even look at that piece of paper again till the next session. And especially at the time I was living out in a remote community, I was doing Skype sessions with my psychologist once a month. So it really had very little impact on, on my everyday life. And so it, I sort of had touch points with, with that kind of values-based therapy again and again over the years. But I would say really since moving back to Sydney and I've started use, working with another, a new psychologist who's had a more... She, the way she works with me, she ties everything to how I'm going to act that out in my everyday life and how that's actually going to influence my behaviours. And I think that's made it stick in a way that it hadn't previously where there was lots of great ideas, made me think a lot about myself, but not in a way that I, when I woke up the next morning, I knew how that was going to play out in my everyday life. You pointed out something that's really, really important around even just therapeutic work in general when we're talking about values is timing, fittingness, dosage approach. And uh, so, for example, you know, Katie said, I found this helpful, but then I would finish and it would go home. And, and often patients, in my work at least, they come in and I work from a relatively psychodynamic framework, but it's called the solution fantasy. And there's a projection that you're omnipotent and you will solve it all for them in one session and then everything will be great. <laughs> but the problem is that I do feel like inherently that that, that actually can model powerlessness and further victimise a patient. Uh, you know, it can, it can say, like, here you go, here's a bunch of homework and you go do it. And it, and it really uh, it, it really creates a dynamic that is about I wouldn't say punitive, but it creates a dynamic in which you have this the sort of pupil to teacher relationship as opposed to a collaborative one. And the other part is that a lot of people will come in without knowing concretely what it is that's happening for them, you know. And so going for you, this is this was a really helpful instrument, but what do I do with it now? Yeah. So we have to kind of work out. Do I offer a concrete solution to a non-concrete problem or do I offer a non-concrete concrete solution to a concrete problem? Because often psychological difficulties are not concrete. Um, so, you know... I, I would agree with that because for me, as somebody who experiences mental illness, I have very little insight into, into the way that I think and into my moods and that kind of thing. Often it will be quite far into an episode before I even realise it's happening. Mm. So, you know, often I'll go in and I'll talk and, and it'll be a rational thing for me. And, and I do know that over the years I got very frustrated um, with, with therapy and, and almost wanted to give up on it because... I had kept having these great aha moments and it was resonating and it was sticking in my head and I thought, I get this, why can't I practice it? Like, why isn't this actually changing my life? You know, I, I'm hearing it, I understand it, she's given me this great tool, but I just can't get to practicing it in my everyday life. And that makes you feel like a failure as a patient, you know. You go back, you, you almost don't want to go to that next session. The amount of sessions I've cancelled with my psychologist because I hadn't done the homework and, <laughs> and I felt, yeah, and I felt really bad and I thought, what am I going to go and say the same stuff that I said last time because she gave me the solution last time and I didn't do it. So no. I'm just a failure, so what is the point? Especially when it's expensive to go to yeah, these sessions. And for me, moving into coaching psychology um, is much more, it historically came out as solution-focused therapy, but it's much more a collaborative approach, so it's not me as the expert. And that has been, had been a, had been a challenge for me as, I guess, as an expert in ClinSight. And I still think that there are times, obviously, well, you are an expert, but the approach that you take through a coaching approach is more of the questioning and the asking and trying to draw out as much wisdom you know, yourself and asking you, how do you, how do you think that might fit in your life? Would you be willing, like, you know, could you try that? And, um, and we also set up 
um, I guess, in the coaching session, looking at opportunities for, I guess, self-coaching through uh, the time between seeing set, uh, sessions um, and looking for, I guess, uh, tiny habits. That's some of the research coming out of the Stanford Decision Lab now. You've probably That's seen. That's been huge, yeah. For yeah. me, it's those... Um, like that's the way my current psychologist frames it is, okay, what exactly, like what is something that you're going to do this week? Like a little thing, but also the habits. For me, I've become a huge advocate of the impact that habits can have on managing your mental health because it's, if I practice mindfulness every day and there's some prompts in my mindfulness that helps me remember that, that helps. So Susie, I might stay with you a minute, yeah. just going back a step. Um, if people are struggling to clarify their values, are there some tricks you can tell us, some ways, some strategies yeah. to help people arrive at their values that we could use? Definitely. Um, I mean, we've just, over the years, myself and the team have just simply used a values list. You can Google, there are extensive amounts of values lists available on Google. And, um, and we've just created a list as a starting point and suggested that it's not exhaustive, you know, please you know, think more broadly around it. Um, and interestingly, we're just about to create a set of values cards um, as well because we have strengths cards which people really get a lot out of. Um, people like cards as well. I guess, again, from my learning, I usually suggest people don't rush it. Like, um, and I would... we talk about mindfulness or meditation of some sort and uh, perhaps, you know, reflecting, looking at the list, doing some meditation and just asking yourself what really does matter most to me, then coming back, looking at the list or writing it down or just, yeah, doing an automatic writing process just to see what comes out. And we usually say try and bypass here and just write from the heart and just see what comes out of that. And I usually suggest nature. Um, there's a lot of research, as many of you will know, out of eco-psychology. It seems to prime us for our intrinsic natures. Um, in fact, there was one study done not so long ago where they had two groups of people. Um, one was just a plain white room. The other one was a plain white room filled with indoor pot plants, green, greenery. And they asked people to go in and set their goals. And they found the people in the green room had a significantly um, more intrinsic type goals of making a difference, leaving a legacy, family relationships to compared to people who are in the stark white, which were much more extreme, like wealth and um, achievement focus. So it's like nature seems to prime us for our intrinsic good, which I like. So, and having heard from many clients over the years, going to the beach, you know, going on a retreat or just the park can really help tap into those. Uh, core values. My my analyst said something to me once, which I found actually it was a really simple but beautiful statement. Is I said to him, I always find myself connected to the more curious aspects of myself, the more wondrous aspects of myself, the more vital aspects of myself when I travel. Yeah. And I don't think that's compared to the sort of aspects of myself of who I am in my working life. It's not like they're, that they're compartmentalised, but, you know, this part of us or the creative aspects of our lives are latent in some, in some way. And he said it's almost like, you know, in nature you are your nature. But what I also need to point out is that when we're talking about values, when people are seeking your help, they are coming not necessarily going, what are my values? They often don't know. It's a bit like saying when someone comes in going, I'm distressed, um, you know, like, and you might say as a clinician, so just tell me what you need right now. Like, if you have never had your needs for nurture met, how would you know what your nurture needs are? How would, how would you know how to express your need for care or love? How would you need to know you to uh, what self-respect is if it's never been uh, behaved towards you or you've never internalised it? And so, you know, Kay, you spoke about this notion to some respect when it was like this sheet was given to you, but the internalisation of the therapist happens so much later on in therapy. And so that's why I'm a really, really, really big believer, which can be very frustrating to my patients at first in the not knowing stance. So I actually kind of deliberately be less active. Um, often when they're anxious, they come in and they say like, give me a strategy, give me a strategy, give me a strategy, make it stop, make it stop, make it stop. And I'm like, you do realise that me giving you that is just going to... It's a little bit like saying, does my butt look big in, in these jeans? The 17th time I say it is going to have less resonance than the first. And so I'm going to do nothing. What does that bring up? Because that's the parallel 
process of powerlessness in which you can then explore, okay, hang on a moment, this might mean that autonomy and power is a value in you that is currently not being met. So you can also work from a kind of place where it's not there and figure it out from that place as opposed from assuming that every single person has the capacity work to work from a top-down approach. There's another really, it's an old study out of self-determination uh, theory, self-concordant, um, it's Ken Sheldon's work. And he asked people, it was a guided visualisation um, exercise and people were asked to reflect on um, a goal that had been given to them by someone else, mm. that if they had a choice that they wouldn't necessarily pursue it, so they felt that they had to, perhaps through their work or they felt they should. Um, and then he asked them to direct their attention to their body and just notice the feelings in their body. And then he did uh, then asked them to think about a goal that is absolutely yours and that, you know, you would pursue even if you weren't you know, if you weren't getting paid or whatever, and then, again, direct your attention to your body. And the studies were that people feel it. They feel when it's not their goal, and, and in that sense, that also links to values. That's another, I guess, recommendation that I've given to clients in the past is to, when you are going through the process, notice how you're feeling because your body will often tell you, does this feel right? But basically, by the time, you know, and perhaps I'm, I'm more explicit in a coaching sense, um, that you get down to those top five, they will feel, you will know, they will feel right mm. when you get down to those top five. I, I would say that as a patient, like it can be really confronting though, because I know mm. some of the work that I did around goals, um, you know, realising that some of those goals that I thought were mine are actually, you know, some of those yeah. externalised goals. It, you know, I did have that feeling where I was like, okay, that doesn't feel comfortable, it's not my goal. But then it was also really uncomfortable to think, well, what now? Because oh, yeah. as you say, like, you know, at least if we have goals that we're following because of our parents' values or society's values, you know, at least that's something to cling on to in a world where you, you might not be very self-aware about your values or your goals. And but, I'm yeah, so if I'm not, you know, if I'm not going to follow this path that's been predetermined to me... Mm what the hell am I going to do with my life? That's, that is actually terrifying. And I know that that was a really confronting experience exactly. for me. And the other, I guess, the other part that I've experienced with clients over the years is that it's sometimes once they get clarity, and I mean, this also speaks to the research around authenticity um, or historically in psychology, we've studied inauthenticity or the creation of the false self-identity. Yeah. The thing with it doesn't have to be major changes because what I found with values work is it can be a tiny change. You know, uh, if you realise, and again, health is a really good one because people generally value their health. And I, you know, have asked clients, can you rate out of five? If five is my life reflects that this is a really important value to me and zero is not really living it at all, what rating would you give it? And when they rate, you know, like three or two and then they sort of see that's why there's been some discomfort or, you know, because I'm basically saying this is important but I'm not living it. Um, and it can be yeah, quite challenging but often I found tiny, tiny, in, in the next week what would be one small thing you could do to start living that value a little bit more. And it, and I, I think I said to you, Vera, out of all the tools, and I've learned a lot, you know, done lots of PD and training, and the values for me has been the most powerful um, in all of the work that I've done with clinical counselling coaching clients. And Kate, I might just then check with you. You mentioned kind of the difficulty of yeah. working out what were your authentic values, <coughs> what really belonged to you. Two questions. One is... Did anything, like, how did you do it? How did you get to them? And B, what was it like to discover them? So I, I you know, I've done lots of exercises with, with different psychologists over the years where it's been about what are your values? And I have felt that that found that um, I, I never found an exercise that really um, resonated with me when, when it's just talking about values. For me, it kind of um, had to happen backwards. Um, because I, I don't know if maybe I'm just a really pragmatic person or I tend to be a little bit too much in my own head. And because my experience of mental illness, particularly having bipolar, has meant that um, I, sometimes I'm, there's not there's different versions of myself. About, do you know what um, I mean? Like there's I a had to tie it to like how I'm going to be living self, my life as opposed to self, it being... Uh, for me, um, 
the conceptual stuff is stuff that I'm fascinated by and I like to live, really read about, but it doesn't actually change my behaviour or the way that I live my life. So for me, the best exercise that I did and um, was um, I was asked to imagine a day in my life in 10 years' time. So just lie down and visualise itself. I wake up, I'm in bed. What does the bed look like? What does my room look like? Who is in my room with me? I get up, what do I do straight away when I get up? Okay, I leave for work, I go to the office. What is my office? I'm closing my eyes because I'm imagining it. I go back to this little place all the time now. And so it was really about, okay, like for my future, what do I want? And then bringing bringing that back to, okay, the workplace that I've imagined, why have I imagined it that way? What was it about the workplace that I really value? So for me, it was working in a workplace that was very collaborative and team-based. I was working really with smart people. And so, uh, you know, being able to look at how that aligned with my values and then, again, being able to look at, okay, how's my life right now differently, different than that? And so, you know, what is that, how is that impacting on my values and how how might I be able to live my values in a way to get to that point? So for me, it was a real visualisation exercise that I can I can easily go back to and then sort of think, okay, well, where am I now on my journey to that and how's that aligning with my values? I really like that because we have a tool in coaching that's been around for a long time called the letter from the future um, where you do, it's like your future self writing to yourself now, but we usually do it like the values clarification piece first and then the instructions are... Um, and because it's into the longer term, we call it a fuzzy vision because you can't know exactly what's going to happen and if you get too stuck on one pathway, you miss all the other fantastic opportunities. So it's more important to think about the things that matter most to you and what would life really look like if you were living those values. But I actually really like that approach. It really helped me. Like, I think with a lot of these tools, it's important to remember that something that's going to work for one person isn't going to work for another. And that's why I think, you know, uh, I mean, for you guys as practitioners, it's always good to have so many tools in your belt. I mean, I work with disadvantaged people all the time, youth, you know, prisoners. And that's, and for the team that I work with, that's the, the language that I use. Let's have as many tools in our belt as we can so that we can bring out whatever is going to be most useful because, you know, I've had young people come through my service that, you know, sitting down and doing it like that exercise that you were talking about with the values on cards has worked really well for them. Others, if you put that in front of them, they have a real freak out and they really feel bad about themselves because they think, well, I don't know, I don't have any values, I'm a pathetic person. Like, that can be really confronting. In reference to what Kate spoke about earlier, always, always, always take on that a client's do not say that a client is not agreeing with you or being resistant. A client's resistance is communicative. It tells you something and it actually you need to ask yourself, what is it that I might be doing that might not be fitting them versus, oh God, they're not adhering. <laughs> yeah, they're not, they're not being the good patient. Mm-hmm. You know, you have to be really flexible with the way that you fit. Um, and you have to be really aware that for somebody who, you know, rips up a sheet of paper that you might give them, let's look at it at the most classic example, that might tell you a great deal about their, the values that have been shoved on them, such as command and authority. <laughs> and they don't want that. And so if you're going to relate to them in a commanding and authority and an authoritarian way, um, which is a behavioural set linked to a value, then you're going to lose them. So you have to be very, very, very reflective in action about how you work with people and what works with them. And Sophia, I might stay with you then. Sometimes our clients might come to us with values we really don't value yep. or with ideas of what's valuable that at a, at a personal yep. level are yep. even affronting to yep. us. How do you manage that as a therapist when... Uh, So, and I say this with great honesty. Mm. So because I work primarily from a formulation approach, I I absolutely say that I think when I very, when I very, when I first started as a psychologist, I think the idea was that you meant to take the non-judgmental stance. And really, it was actually about, I secretly have judgment about that, but I'm just not allowed to say it. (laughs) It's very much about just trying to understand the function of the behaviour as opposed to, you know, judging it as right or wrong. The, the second one is 
very much uh, being a reflective practitioner, so reflection in action. So one thing I've noticed that's particularly triggering or used to trigger me was if a client said, like, oh, you know what all women are like, and, and I identify personally as a feminist, and so that, that would trigger me, and yet I would, I would kind of say, is he wanting me to be his ally? Is he wanting me to go, yeah, yeah, I do know what all women are like, tell me about that? Because I noticed in me an urge to go, what do you mean? Um, that's pretty misogynistic. Whereas, so I actually had to explore, tell me in your mind, like, what are all women like, you know? And so you go, there's, there's all of those tiny titrations. The, there's the hold of the moment to moment. There's the noticing of the reaction in yourself. There's the millisecond of responsive urge. There's the holding of that. And then going, what will be clinically useful for the patient in this moment? You have to be, it is about them, not, not about you. So the first question from our audience tonight, I was particularly interested to hear about coaching for kids and in schools. Can you tell us a bit more about that? So I've done most of my coaching studies have been with senior high school students. I've done about three randomised control trials on using evidence-based coaching approaches for senior high school students, which has shown generally that that increases their goal striving, personal and academic, um, but it uh, increases their wellbeing. Um, not in all, one study it didn't increase their wellbeing and that was a study at a selective high school and um, as much as we were encouraging them to focus on their wellbeing and set personal goals, a lot of them we found out had been sent by their parents so they weren't purely yes. intrinsically motivated. So, um, so yeah, so at the moment there's also a movement, as I said, into positive psychology. So some schools are actually running explicit uh, classes on, I guess, the science of, of wellbeing, if you like. Um, they're not necessarily using coaching. Um, most of my writing has been trying to integrate both of those approaches. So you can learn the science of wellbeing, but as we know, I actually worked in a dietitian's office for a year after I finished my doctorate um, with the hope of doing some health coaching. And I had person after person coming saying, I could be a dietitian, I know what I'm meant to be doing, I'm just not doing it. Um, so yeah, so the coaching, some of our coaching approaches, for me, even though as I said, I haven't worked clinically for a while, it transformed my clinical practice using some of the coaching approaches. And technically it's defined, coaching psychology is defined for a normal population because the danger is if you use um, a more, uh, I guess, stretch and, um, you know, you're assuming that the person has a certain level of, uh, yes. Insight and psychological mindset. Exactly. I would love to see more psychologists, health professionals move into that space. They're perfect for it. Um, but it is a slight shift in some, I know, I mean, it's been a while since I did my doctorate in clean psych and I know things are changing um, but I still find I went to a clinical supervision group not that long ago and I guess I did feel like a bit of an outsider because I felt they were still talking very much about diagnosis and symptom reduction whereas the approach that I used when I came across the coaching approach was to look at that person their whole life their values what their desires and dreams were for the future um, and what we could do to simultaneously boost their mood not necessarily not you know as a distraction from not sitting with discomfort or... And that's been one of the, I guess, myths of positive psychology is that people often think that it's all about being happy and positive. And I usually say they will, they might lock you up if you are like that all of the time. So, um, so and it's been really great. Some of my colleagues in the US, Todd Cashton and Robert Biswazdina, have written some great books on the upside of your dark side. And I guess particularly coming from a clinical background, I've always, I've never said it's about being happy all the time and that there is real benefit in understanding the full range of human emotions. And that was something that I think resonated hugely with me when I started, um, you know, following this more active approach in my therapy was the idea that it was okay to sit with your discomfort and your anxiety and your depression and that was okay because I think part of what was exacerbating my mental illness was that I thought, yeah, that those were bad and I had to push them away and I would and I would do that until I would explode in either direction. So, you know, actually practising that, you know, sit that, that comfort with those negative emotions has been really helpful for me in, in managing you know, my, my, mental work, my mental health, yeah. What's wonderful about positive psychology as a whole is that unlike, say, traditional models where it was about 
deficit model. The paradigm was about symptom reduction and symptom management. Let's get rid of the bad stuff. And then therefore the person goes to baseline. Mm, positive, psych <laughs> yeah. positive psychology in fact says, yes, we need to look at not just symptom reduction and symptom management, but higher level stuff that is incredibly about, it's incredibly existential. It's about personal meaning, personal fulfillment, personal satisfaction. What gives me a sense that my life is meaningful? Something but I would say really for important. the positive psychology model, like I know you were talking before about people that it may be lower on that Maslow's hierarchy of need, this is less relevant to them. But I, I would disagree with that because I work with lots of people that are experiencing quite dis severe mm. disadvantage. I've worked in out mm. in Aboriginal communities and with people in prisons and I found that the, the, the strength-based and the values-based approach working with those those cohorts has been really valuable for them because sometimes that, um, because no matter where, whether you're a drug user who's mm. homeless on the street or you're in prison about to be released, your behaviour is still being driven by values, whether yes. you know, when you're, whether you're self-aware yes, of them or yes, not, you know, yes. that is, because, you know, I, I mean, they there have that, stress. yeah, they have that um, saying, honour amongst thieves, like yes. even if you're a yes. junkie and you're yes. committing crimes, you still have a value system yes. that you, yes. you go to. With, yes. and, and so for me, I think in the program that we developing in prisons, but also with the work that we've done with youth, um, getting them to understand why they do the way they, th they, why they do the things that they do, particularly when those things are so self-sabotaging, yeah. is actually can be quite transformative. And I know that because that's being transformative for myself, because particularly as somebody with bipolar, who's experienced lots of uh, manic episodes where I've been immensely self-destructive, you know, really looking at why I had those particular impulses and what what was driving those in terms of my values has been quite instructive to me in terms of preventing myself from engaging in those behaviours again. So I think, you know, I think that looking at values can be important no matter where you are in your life. Another question from our audience. So you've been talking about values as though they're fixed, something latent in a person that just needs to be made avert. Is it not the case that sometimes values shift or evolve as we move through different experiences in our lives? You know, operational definitions of what values are can be anything from a trait, a goal, if we're looking at self-determination theory, to something that kind of uh, comes about or is crystallised after a loss experience, like my health, you know, was really bad and now I've discovered it's this. Right. And so, yes, they're dynamic and they're shifting. Curiosity is the mindset as a coach. Yeah. That's where we've... No, I didn't learn that from my clinical training, I can tell you. I mean, we've talked about metacognitive and well, the that's process. The, that's the not knowing stuff. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but the curiosity... <laughs> and, and for me, that's where the mindfulness is key and it's increasingly being referred to as the foundation of flourishing because if you haven't got a level of mindfulness. And with that mindfulness, and some of you will know Kabat-Zinn actually, as part of his definition, he does say non-judgmental and like you said, Sophie, I've had issues with that myself because we know the brain, that's how it operates. It, it likes to categorise. That's right. But the opportunity with mindfulness is to be aware oh, and, and combined with a curious... Oh, that's interesting. Mm -hmm. You know, that's interesting, you know, about my value or not living that value. And in some of the work I've done with clients is looking at where the development of the value has come from. Um, having some compassion around around that, grieving the loss of the, the client I had that said he was living his father's life. He, I sent him away to reflect on, you know, that and uh, he reluctantly came back and said, I'm hanging on to a couple of my father's values. <laughs> but he said, it's going to take me some time. He said, but I did realise they really are mine, but there's still a part of me that thinks that they're my dad's. So he said, uh, but um, he, he did let go of another couple that he realised and developed some compassion for and we did do a bit of grief work around letting that go. But this well. is about, I think, as a whole, you know, the claiming of the integrated self. Uh, most patients I see will come in with a really strong unconscious urgency to purge the parts of the cells they don't like, which is I want to do not want to become my mother or my father. And, and so they link, therefore, you know, they're very, very, very triggered by aspects of themselves that are um, like, oh, God, I do this, does this make me this? And so then, you know, we... Analysts used to call it like the, ne the neurotic type, but it's actually more about um, it's it's number one establishing insight. Number two, it's about labeling as a point of facilitating insight as opposed to pathologizing. 
And number three, it's, an, it's acknowledging those parts will fluctuate over time. Mm. That like that's a very normal part of someone seeking help. Another question from the audience. This one's for Kate. You mentioned your values change depending on your mood state. For example, in a state of mania within your bipolar disorder. Can you tell us in more detail what that means? As I said before, I don't always have really good insight on myself when I'm in those phases. So, and often I don't have good memory of, of, of the way that I was when I was in those states either. Um, but, you know, I think, I think maybe, um, I don't think I was ever had totally different values because you're still the same person no matter whether you're having an episode, but certainly there was a bigger focus on some of those values as opposed to others. So, you know, for me, the value was on adventure, on curiosity. So I would follow myself into a curiosity hole, you know, like a Wikipedia where I'd get obsessive about something. Um, yeah, so there would be some, some values that would just be really heightened to the detriment of other values like you know, being um, being present with, with my friends and family or being focused, you know, those kind of values went out the window in, in favour of some of those values that just got dialed up. Um, and then, you know, in, in a more depressive state, again, I think, you know, some of those values... I think became more heightened to me, but more in a way to shame myself. Mm. You know, I really, I, va I value this and I'm not, I'm not following through on that. I'm a failure because I'm not, I know I have that value, but it's not, you know, I'm not living up to that right now. So I think that's something to be mindful maybe when you're, when you're working with people who are bipolar or, or depressive is that, you know, that work that you do on values need to be mindful that when people are not in the greater space, that those values can be used against them almost and, in a way. And working with shame. Working because shame, shame and shame is, for, you know, I don't know if that's common for bipolar people, but for me that's huge. I don't know, mm. Catholic upbringing, who knows? But, like, I, you know, for me that's, that's always been um, when I'm feeling down on myself, I, I go straight to shame and sometimes those values can be used for, for that purpose. Mm. Sometimes I heard someone commentating about the recent cricket scandal that there may have been a conflict in values for the young batsman in terms of loyalty to his team versus fair play. Um, are conflicts in values common? And how do we resolve the conflicts in values? Uh, the dissonance between values is really, really common because we are living in a world in which we are required to be compartments of ourselves in various environments. So maybe a concrete example is a patient that I am seeing who works in sales and he really struggles in that environment because, you know, he has he, self-identified, he's, he's got traits such as sensitivity, his values are kindness and loyalty and generosity. Um, and yet his work is based on, you know, you're as good as your last sale, you're as good as your last dollar, you're as good as your last X, Y and Z. And so his esteem fluctuates constantly. You know, he has a great sense of uh, value of uh, providing for his family, which is why, you know, sales is kind of a, a role that fits with that value, but it doesn't fit with the intrinsic parts of himself. Right. That's a really common one is the conflict between family, family and accomplishment and or health um, and obviously here in Sydney CBD in a certain uh, environment but part of the I guess work that we've been doing in schools is uh, you know have, is there a space to actually discuss when kids are younger what does success mean you know do we all necessarily need to be putting this pressure on kids to get ATARs, to get into law? I mean, I've worked with plenty of unhappy lawyers over the years, I can tell you, Penny, Penny yeah. will tell you that. So, you know, for one, I think we need to have, in terms of success as a value and accomplishment, we need to be having those discussions in schools, in our families, in our communities about what does a successful life mean and, and it we don't all necessarily have to be achieving and striving to that degree. Yeah. So in That's practice, value. say the common one of providing versus being with my family, mm, yeah. how do we help people resolve that tension? Yeah, I can give a really uh, great example. Actually, one of my first coaching clients was an accounting a partner and, um, you know, we did his values and families, num family, number one. So this is a man that was home at... 8, 30, 9 o'clock, didn't see his children during the week. And I actually, this is quite common. And for me, coming from Wollongong, 
where I had very different backgrounds to Sydney, um, I remember one of the first investment bankers I worked with that said to me, when I said, what, you don't see your children? And he went, mm. don't feel sorry for me, Susie, I make a lot of money. Mm. And I said, well, I can actually present a lot of research to show you that that's not going to give you an extra happiness point. Happiness <laughs> 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 point, you're not a KPI. <laughs> you, your, your kids aren't Exactly. <laughs> but for this uh, man, he had family, but he had accomplishment, um, and then he realised that the accomplishment was really about providing for his family. So part of our coaching was getting, really getting clarity that family really was number one. So we used, I mean, that's the beauty of having apps, notifications. We just, we use a lot of primes in coaching. So just putting it on his computer, having it written up on the wall, on his whiteboard. And he said to me, and this is, I guess, one I often quote, that the values clarification became the best decision-making tool he ever had. And once he was in his face, it was so much easier to make the decision to go home at six rather than eight or nine. Um, but it was a balance between... Yeah, and I will say that that concept of priming or, or nudge theory, whatever you might want to call it, is so effective because I think, uh, you know, because I've seen a lot of psychologists over the years, I think there's been a lot that have, like, really talked a good game and I get a, I feel pumped when I get out of that session, but how does that? How do I bring that into my everyday life? And it's really, you know, more recently where I've learned about these concepts of priming and, and nudging myself into good positions and giving myself an environment for success, that has made the difference in bringing those concepts into my everyday life in a way that actually makes a difference to my behaviour and my thought patterns day to day, as opposed to just having these great aha moments every time I have a session once a fortnight. So yeah, that's that's been really effective. I will say like just one thing as well around sort of like we are talking about kind of coaching and values and like the greatest premise is what is good enough? Like what is good enough? If you are a mother who has breastfed all night and you have had two hours sleep, rocking up to the office alone um, is good enough. If you have been sick for two weeks and, you know, you have a lot of stuff going on in the background and you feel and you feel enough guilt that, you know, you're not pulling your weight at work and blah, 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 what is good enough? And for people who have very unrelenting standards of themselves are often those who are values, if we're talking about values as traits, conscientious, you know, intelligent, have certain expectations, it's actually about what strangely they may frame as failure. It's more like letting go practice. Mm -hmm. There's a real fear that if I do less, then I will become less. So I'm, I'm, you know, and I'm really a big believer in like, you're not as valuable as what you do, you're as valuable as who you are. And so there's a very strong kind of discourse in the world about, you know, we are as good as what we show and what we deliver, and, I've, and I struggle greatly with that, um, and people struggle great, greatly with that. So it's about, yeah, it's, it's what, what the middle ground is, what is good enough, what is good enough. You don't have to do everything. So our final question for the evening, what do you think are the take-home messages for the clinicians here in the room tonight? I'm, I'm not a practitioner, so I don't have all the signs. I can only speak to my own experience. But I think, um, yeah, I, I think really when working with patients, try to understand how the information and the tools that you're giving them in, in that clinical environment is actually going to be used out in the world. Like, you know, there's no there's no point giving people homework if you don't think that that's going to fit in with them. That's just not the way that they work. Um, I think, you know, ask them, like, what, what kind of apps do you use? Do you use reminders on your phone? Do you want me to, like, send you an email twice in this week? And if so, what time of the day would be work? Because lots of times I have reminders, but, you know, if it's not at the right time of day, I'm just going <laughs> to flick through it. But, you know, getting them to, to getting an understanding of, like, what their day, what their routine is so that you could try to fit that practice into their routine in a way that's going to prompt them during the week. Um, you, like, feel like a disruption or feel like a command. Yeah, something. yeah. 
Yeah. So like try to get them to plan that in in a way that's going to work with their life because, you know, for, I've got a colleague at work who, yeah, she has little mantras or whatever that come up all during the day, but I know that like I'm just busy and I get in my little zone at work and that's just not going to work for me. Mute. So for me, <laughs> yeah, mute, mute, mute. <laughs> so for me, like I have to schedule it. So I think understanding like the daily routines of your patient's life might really be helpful. Um, not the daily routines that they'd like to have, but the daily routines they actually have because we've all got differences there. Um, because like I said earlier, I think having a routine that prompts me, that um, triggers the positive stuff as opposed to the negative stuff has made an enormous difference in, in managing my mental illness. Yeah. And I guess in a concrete way, some patients may need sort of, if we're looking at like your classical mood kind of uh, assessment, like what was your average mood this week and some on a zero to five and you qualify what they, what they mean and some will say it wildly fluctuates. And I always, if someone says it, it's been around a four, I, I always say what would make it a 4.2, like literally tiny increments and what would make it a 3.8. Um, but with regard to... Yeah, so, so always sort of qualifying and, and like small things like in the last week, I like the, um, it comes from family of origin uh, theory, but I like the amplification of deviations, which is an intervention of going, was there one moment this week where you thought that in fact you might have had an argument with your partner because of X, Y and Z and that didn't happen yeah. and what was different about that moment yeah. and, and, and exactly and amplifying it and doing that as well. The third, this feels tangential in my mind, but the third thing is that um, with regard to the research that we're currently working on, which may be helpful, you know, when it comes out, is we're doing uh, a clinically and non-clinically useful tool called the Spark app, which is literally a values-based instrument, which is about not just identification of values, but it gives you, it generates like a profile of all of the uh, personal values that are most aligned for you. And then I'm going to be doing a qualitative project as an adjunct to that, in which we're going to be exploring individuals who feel like that their lives are discordant from their values and those who are concordant and what that tells us about, you know, like the lived experience of everyday values. Um, yeah, and looking potentially at um, giving some suggestions to live a value. Oh, completely. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, you know, not just... I'm not just talking about sort of because... Behavioural activation also looks at, you know, intervening yeah. so that your mood improves. This is more like how do you live moment to yeah. moment in a more values-adherent yeah. way? Um, and they're tiny things. Yeah. They're the tiniest things, but they're so significant. That's true. Tiny things can make such a big difference. I really think we underestimate, like, yeah. the small changes. Yeah. Well, we have a saying, what's well, the smallest thing that you can do? Exactly do right. The yeah. biggest. Um, and also, like... What's doable. Yeah. Don't set it too high because otherwise you'll lose somebody and they'll feel like a family. Exactly. And I think the, the health one um, for those, particularly with parental roles, um, and I know myself, my kids are 22 and 26 now. Um, I did my values in my early 30s. So I'm, and, you know, it was quite a process because I came across it and I thought I need to do this for myself. And it really was transformational for me in my life. And I also started keeping a journal. So I've got journals from 1997. So journals have been 20 years of journal writing. Um, but, yeah, so for me, health has always been, for me, it's like the underpinning of me being able to do what I do and I like it, I feel good. But when the kids were little and I couldn't live that value as fully, I didn't feel like, particularly around exercise, whereas as they started to grow up and I had more capacity, so I know with the clients I've worked with, it's been about, well, what's something small? Because the main thing is... If you're saying it's important, living it. So, but at this stage of your life, it might just be in this way, and that might change as you get older, you know. But what's it's not about. It's what's good enough. It's like yeah. okay, like this was value was really really important, but like I only got to, but I only got to like live it out for five seconds. Yeah. You got to live it out for five seconds. Yeah, that's right. Okay, five you know, seconds is better than nothing. That's exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly right. Well, that brings us to the end of our time. How quickly did the time go? Thank you so much to our wonderful panel. Thank you. I really appreciate the discussion. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to hear more of our podcasts, 
Subscribe to and review Black Dog Institute on iTunes or your preferred podcasting platform. If you're interested in knowing more about our educational programs and research, please visit our website at blackdoginstitute.org.au.